0: Welcome to episode 28 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Now, today I'm excited to welcome Mario Gabriel. Mario is the founder of The Generalist, a modern media company. Since its founding in 2020, The Generalist has grown to more than 60,000 subscribers and is read by the most influential founders investors, and operators across the tech world. Mario also runs Generalist Capital, an early-stage venture fund focused on helping founders create and capture narrative power. He contributes to Philosophical Foxes, an on-chain storytelling initiative. Well, Mario, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Alex. It's great to be here.
0: How about we kick things off with telling us a little bit about how you made your way into the world of startups and investing.
1: To be honest, it's uh, been a pretty circuitous path in many respects. Uh, when I was in college, I really had almost no awareness uh, or, or interest as a result in, in, techs and startu- in tech and startups. Uh, I was very much minded towards politics and the public sector as the way to hopefully make an impact in the world. Um, and so as a result, you know, I had a very traditional path set out for myself, you know, go, go to uh, law school, then you know, try and work on the hill, and then slowly, you know, make your way up through the rankings uh, before you can start to make an impact. Um, and that thesis kind of fell apart pretty quickly in the sense that my first job out of college was at a law firm that had a really interesting program in theory, which was that, you know, you could take sort of young Uh, smart folks and teach them to do as much legal work as they were able to do legally uh, before they got a law degree. And so, you know, I worked at this firm, got to work on one of the first Madoff cases, uh, got to, you know, assist New York City's uh, sort of post-Hurricane Sandy relief efforts and all of these things that were interesting legally and, uh, you know, gave a significant amount of responsibility. Uh, But I quickly realized that the type of work involved in law uh, was really not well-suited to my interests uh, or my strengths. And uh, increasingly, I found that whenever I had a free moment at that job, I started reading TechCrunch. Uh, I don't know how I stumbled across it, but it just started to absorb my brain in this sort of interesting way uh, and fill up my free time. And what I really, I think, liked about it was that Tech seem to be such a more direct way of making an impact in our era uh, versus the public sector. I mean, obviously, there are some things that are best addressed through government or, you know, nonprofits, certainly. But when you look at a story like Mpesa in sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, uh, PIX, which is sort of a government quasi-governmental uh, tech edition in Brazil, you, you really see that uh, you can make a lot more progress, a lot more quickly um, with technology in a, at, least, at least a reasonable amount of the time. Um, and so that sparks an interest that sort of then developed into a more professional career.
0: What an interesting start to then you know, pick up on the tech crunch and then ultimately you know, really chase that curiosity all the way. I do want to talk about the generalist a little bit more and I guess the background to beginning writing.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a a period of of sort of wandering and experimenting, I would say, between sort of realizing law school was not going to be the thing and founding the generalist. Um, There's an interesting sort of framework that I've been thinking about more and more. I can't remember who coined it, but it's the idea of exploring and then exploiting, Uh, you know, to, to summarize it, a good or interesting way to build a career is explore a lot of different topics, find one that, you know, you think, you see opportunity in for yourself and, and more broadly, and then exploit it. Um, and the generalist was kind of, uh, a culmination of what I didn't realize was an exploration. You know, I was really just going from one thing to another, uh, trying to figure out the best next move, but it it certainly wasn't structured in any meaningful way. So, you know, I left the law firm, uh, I spent that year writing the first draft of a novel that I've been working on for 11 plus years. Um, I went to culinary school and cooked at, you know, Michelin star restaurant in New York for a summer. I went to grad school uh, focusing on international development with a focus on tech and emerging markets. Um, And then I sort of had a more traditional startup career, uh, first at a company called Andco, which was a SaaS platform for freelancers and remote workers um, and then in venture at a pre-seed firm in New York city called charge ventures. Um, and it was while I was at charge that I started to experiment with not just writing, which had been a very much a lifelong habit. Um, and particularly, you know, a habit around fiction writing, uh, but writing about technology and seeing if that was something that, uh, I could do well. um, and that would, you know, support a career in venture capital and, really from that very modest goal of just, you know, getting your ideas out into the world, I started to get increasingly interested, increasingly passionate about it, um, and increasingly bullish about what could be done in this space. Like what is missing in the conversation in tech that potentially I could uniquely exploit, or, you know, that's a, you know, perhaps a less uh, positive word than I really mean, but just to tie it back to that framework,
0: In that writing process, Mario, I'm curious to know how writing has been beneficial to you along the way and to the clarity of your own thought when synthesizing information.
1: To be honest, I'm not really someone who has had to convince myself of the importance of writing uh, because I don't think I've ever really approached it necessarily from Uh, the standpoint of like, oh, this would be beneficial for me. I should sort of try and force myself to do it. Like if no one read The Generalist, I would still be writing a lot every day. Uh, You know, starting in in 2012, as I mentioned, I started working on this novel that at some point I hope to publish. But over the next, you know, 11 years, I was getting up an hour or two before work uh, to go sit in a coffee shop and write it and not really sharing it with anyone except for you know some some small writing groups um and that to me is still like the most blissful activity i have discovered and so uh yeah writing for me has always been like play the the closest thing that i have to like perfect flow all comes when i'm when i'm writing um now of course there are really tangible benefits And I really like to try and convince other people of that, especially if maybe writing isn't something that they uh, naturally gravitate towards. I think it's very easy to convince yourself that you have thought a subject through uh, before you put pen to paper. You know, writing something down is probably the best way to find the holes in your logic and also uh, to force you to learn. I mean, I think one of the the great revelations for me and, you know, it may very well be obvious to other people after graduating from college was that you're really responsible for your own education from now on. You know, you have to figure out a practice to develop yourself into a learning machine uh, if you want to be a kind of highly generative, highly productive person. And writing to me, it's, you know, reading and writing are the two habits that support that much better than, than anything else I've found.
0: Leading up to what were some of the biggest takeaways from your early career that I guess you've taken now into the sphere of writing and investing after launching the generalist capital.
1: Honestly, a lot of them are lessons that other people have articulated really well. So, One I come back to a lot is I can't remember the exact wording, but Steve Jobs said something to the extent of there's a point in your life where you realize that all of your heroes, all of the people who you think are sort of these demigods and gods who have achieved incredible things are just people like you, no less, you know, no more intelligent, no more remarkable, uh, no less flawed and I think that's something that's really hard, or at least I found it really hard to truly believe until I started shipping stuff in the world and like making my thoughts public, putting myself out into the world in a more visible way. Um, And when you do that, like as you have, you know, certainly seen with Through the Noise and um, Twitter, serendipity occurs and you learn so much faster and you meet so many more people and you're able to achieve things. that maybe you didn't realize you could. And as you sort of prove that to yourself over time, I think that Steve Jobs lesson starts to sink deeper into yourself where you start to realize like, yeah, the person who founded that company, they're really great. They're amazing. They have these strengths and these weaknesses, but there's no reason to think like I couldn't do something similar or, you know, that author is a genius and they created one of the most beautiful books of all time. But you know, with enough effort and dedication and thoughtfulness, like why couldn't I do that? And so that is probably the thing that I've had to learn over the years.
0: The Steve Jobs quote, I'll have to dig into a little bit more, but it's, it's so, so true. Um, I guess moving from that, Mary, you know, what now attracts you most to early stage investing?
1: My first experience in early stage investing came in uh, in 2016 when I was lucky at an internship at um, a fund in New York called Red Sea Ventures. Uh, very lucky to have gotten it, frankly, because I was not a typical candidate. You know, I wasn't coming from an MBA background. I was coming from, you know, doing this masters in international development. Uh, hadn't you know had any financial experience before. hadn't worked at a bank or consulting. And so, yeah, grateful to. Scott Birnbaum and uh, and Julian Cunahan, uh, were sort of the two folks I worked most closely with then for, for giving me a shot. And I found that I just really, really liked it. It was such a amazing experience to basically take short form expert lectures all day long. You know, you're talking to a founder and maybe not all of them, you know, t- totally know what they're talking about, but a large number and the vast majority, I would say, tend to know, st- significantly more than you do about any given subject and it's usually a subject they're extremely passionate about and are motivated because of the dynamics to try and teach you Um, and so it's just like huge privilege to get to see really driven people uh, try and explain why they care so much about something Um, and then the sort of second part of it is you know when you find a real kinship and match with someone and can see their vision Um, in its fullest extent, then you get this like amazing job of partnering with them and trying to, uh, be the wind at their back in some respect as they take on like a task in which the odds are hugely stacked against you. Right. Like, you know, depending on what the kill rate is by stage 90% or 75 or, or whatever it is, uh, there's no doubt that it is a fairly epic endeavor, um, with, with high risk. And so that is something that is just like, profoundly fun and like, intellectually engaging.
0: I know you um wonderful angel checks before launching the Generalist Capital. I do want to know where that shift ultimately came from in your head, Mario, between writing these angel checks and going, look, now's the right time to launch a vehicle of my own. We'll see how wonderful my angel checks turn out to be. <laughs> okay. um, I, I,
1: I think, you know, I'm I'm super excited about the companies I've backed and the founders that I get to work with. Uh, but I'm also cognizant that I'm, you know, one minute into the first inning of an investing career probably. And if I do well, then I get to keep playing. But uh, who, who knows? Um, the, the real difference for me came about uh, when I started to realize that I wanted to find a way to be more engaged with these companies, you know, oftentimes in writing a generalist piece or even one of our like partnership pieces, which are sponsored, you get the chance to like go really deep into a company spend a ton of time with their management teams and investors and customers, um, and develop this deep conviction in them and what they're doing. And then you write the piece and there's not really a reason to continue to stay in touch, even, you know, with the best of intentions, everyone is busy. And so, you know, your story with them kind of ends. And while an angel investment maybe helps that a little bit, realistically, the amount of money that I can invest is is not a ton. Um, And so I was pretty limited in both the number of companies I could do and the extent to which I could really prioritize them. Um, And so I started to think about, like, what would it look like for me to do a venture fund and how could I be sort of most impactful? Like what, what would that actually look like if I really was trying to take a big swing to help these companies? And so the thing I landed on was take a really concentrated strategy. You know, pick 15 to 20 companies that you are truly obsessed with, that you love the founder, that you want to work with them and be texting with them all the time and you know uh, on email and jumping on calls obviously, to the extent they want to, but um, if if they see the value in that and help them grow over a long period of time. And that, I think, lined up with the, you know, let's say, super thesis that I've been constantly mining in one way or another through the generalist, which is the idea that narrative power is hugely undervalued in startups. Uh, Even though we know that pitches matter and the story you tell to the market matters, still an area that I don't think many truly crack, and at the very least, it takes them a really long time to crack. Um, And so I felt like with the work I do at The Generalist, I actually might be in a really good place to help with that. And as long as I didn't try and scale the portfolio too widely, I could actually commit real time to helping on that front.
0: Going one step, being able to develop that deep thesis and conviction, what are some of the core traits you look for in founders?
1: This is something i 'm kind of obsessed with uh, i 'm constantly trying to figure out like okay what is that what is that profile and there 's probably no perfect answer uh, because you're you know really trying to rationalize and distill. The qualities of human beings which is you know not not an easy trade at the best of times but the ones that i've seen that are kind of predictive so far um and this is both from investing and just studying companies through the generalist are one extremely extremely fast rate of learning this is by far the most important in my experience like you need someone who can just pick up new topics exceptionally fast and has very little friction in doing that like they're not afraid or doubtful or you know lazy in in doing things that are entirely new to them and maybe outside of their comfort zone you know i think of people like uh christina Cacciopo from Vanta, sam bankman fried from ftx uh andrew brown from chat like these are all founders that i think really exhibit that skill uh to an extremely unusual extent uh the second i would say is like uh a willingness to work like extremely hard. There's sort of, you know, a certain degree of uh, controversy at times in Silicon Valley about, you know, being honest that it takes a lot of work uh, to build a company and that you should have work-life balance, et cetera, et cetera. For the most part, you know, I totally understand why people want work-life balance, but I'm not convinced it's really a very useful trait in a founder as uh, As bad as that sounds, perhaps, but most of the ones I found like tend to be on the extreme side here, also, and have just like an insane capacity to work weekends and nights and do whatever it takes. Uh, A third one is like intellectual honesty. I think there's uh, a lot of founders who maybe feel like they need to project perfect confidence and like they have the answers to everything. I think it's really attracted from an investor standpoint when you meet a founder who says, like, hey, I actually don't know the answer to this. Here's the way we think about it right now. Here are the sort of experiments we're running to test it out. Here's what we're looking for uh, to either confirm or update our position. Uh, you know, just knowing where the gaps are in your own plan is is super important. And the last one, which is maybe one I'm still uh, trying to figure out the best way to frame is the idea that the best founders are hyper generative, uh, over the course of their life, they have shipped lots of businesses, even if they're just sort of side projects, you know, maybe they've done a big art project of some kind or are prodigious writers. Basically, I think that a lot of the founders I've met who are really exceptional have these sort of nuggets or. Many experiments earlier in their life that might kind of look trivial but it shows they have an ability to ship things uh a sort of lack of fear in doing that and a desire to just like constantly be producing and learning and experimenting um and again i would say like christina cacciopo from vanta is a pretty unique case here hyper uh you know extremely good writer reads an insane amount uh, did a ton of different side projects on her way to Vanta um, and is just someone who you kind of think in any scenario that she was in, she would be producing something um, at all times.
0: I can really get behind those traits there, Mario. You mentioned a work hard and I almost like to turn that as an irrational passion for Solving a problem, you know, an, an individual who holds this bias to action, and uh, ultimately, you know, what wants it more than uh, more than anything to get in its way. So, yeah, I really like that that list there. Um, and at least with what you're doing now, Mario, you know, you're you're building as as you tell it, it, and as I believe it, right? It's the most thoughtful tech publication and community on the planet. Diving into that community element what excites you most about the power of community in the future
1: the superpower of community i think when you get it right is that you know you scale far beyond yourself uh and you scale that serendipity far beyond yourself you know i think i'm sure you found this with through the noise but um one of the sort of amazing side effects of this job is that you tend to build a fair amount of social capital. You meet a lot of people, you research a lot of people, you have people reading what you're doing, and it sort of just gives you this uh, chance to, you know, in, in the most perfunctory of, of phrases, like build a network. And that can be really, really valuable, uh, but it's pretty hard to outsource it to people, like you have a bottleneck on your own time. And so there are lots of incidences in which uh, maybe you haven't talked to a friend in a while, and then when you catch up with them, they're like, yeah, you know, we're really trying to get in front of this company to see if they'd be a good partner, or we really are trying to meet with this investor, or we're really trying to hire someone in this space. And because of the work you and I have chosen, often I think we're like particularly useful on that front. but it, there's no real way that we could you know, stay on top of that proactively. And so I think a community is great because if you do a good job of curating it, you hopefully are bringing all these amazing people together to help each other. Um, and you're doing the vetting so that they know uh, there are other really interesting and great people to talk with in this group. And without you having to necessarily be active all the time, you can give them the chance to find serendipity, to scale up their career, uh, to find their next co-founder and so on and so forth. And so, you know, honestly, one of the things that we've done with the community that has been most valuable is just doing monthly introductions where people opt in to meet someone else from the community um, and talk to them about something. And that is like, I mean, early, uh, early days in terms of us gathering data on it, we've done it for about a year or so, but, uh, that's like an 100 NPS activity. People love that. Right. And it's really just giving them the ability to meet people that right. you know they otherwise might not have met in a setting in which they feel safe doing so.
0: No, I like how you're taking some serious action there, Mario. That's wonderful to hear, at least with respect to those introductions. And I totally agree, right? It's, it's not like it's this sort of active management of... Introductions—it's almost um, implicit to the function of building a community, right? It, it it happens almost as a byproduct by putting yourself out there and amassing this social capital that um, individuals get to know, like, and trust you, and and ultimately you can be this, I guess, um, super connector for for those <laughs> for those introductions, which is uh, which is which is really really great. I guess now with generalist capital itself. How do you leverage that community and the social capital to locate the most promising entrepreneurs to back?
1: I think the connection between community and capital is frankly a little early for me to judge too well yet. Um, I have some hunches about what the best ways to create like mutually positive outcomes there will be. Um, But I have to prove that the things that I think will be valuable are, you know, one, there are great entrepreneurs in the community already, people that have raised from, you know, many of the best firms in the world. And so if I had been active, back in the days when they were fundraising, theoretically, I think I would be in a position to uh, at least take a look at the round and, and maybe be a good partner for them. So From the sourcing side of the table, like, I think there's a value for the funds there. Uh, On the support side of the table, my hunch is that having a community of people who are, you know, invested in the generalist in either a literal or psychological way uh, will be beneficial for the companies that we back. So giving our founders complimentary access to the private community for them and, you know, some of their senior employees, I am hopeful will be a really good way for them to recruit, you know, come up with new partnerships uh, and find future investors, uh, just by opening them up to sort of that serendipity of a really, really curated community. Um, And then the final way is really by looping those two things together more explicitly. Um, So by saying, you know, hey, here's one of our great portfolio companies, we invested in the seed or the series A, they're now doing a series B, we're gonna pull together an SPV and as a community member, like you get access to that uniquely. Um, And so those are things that seem to have been done effectively by other people and a new model there, Uh, but I need to make sure that we're get a high quality first before I like really feel confident in it.
0: What would you say looked sector inside? You see right now Mario? I'm probably
1: uh, a little bit or I take probably a little bit of a different view in that there's not necessarily a sector I would point to but there are probably some geographies that I think are are overlooked um, while it is a you know extremely hard time I think to raise money from frontier and invest in uh, emerging markets I remain very bullish over a long-term horizon in the potential for like Extremely good returns there, uh, you know, specifically in, in places like LATAM, where there's pretty low capital availability, there are some really great sort of like levels of education um, and huge opportunities, right? Like these are uh, LATAM as a as a continent or region has very high GDP, um, high internet penetration rates, but still lots of infrastructure that hasn't been built out. Um, And I think we're really going to see many more companies that emerge from that ecosystem that are extremely promising. I mean, I think one of the most remarkable companies of the past 10 years came from Brazil, which is Uh, Nubank. Nubank is one of the most, you know, amazing stories of how technology can fix a broken market and how an entrepreneur can sort of single-handedly bring uh, a... An ecosystem into fruition with, you know, David Velez making fintech in Brazil such a a prominent asset class. Um, So I'm very optimistic about that. I think if you want to even look further afield, there are some really great funds like Sturgeon Capital, who I'm going to be sharing a piece about soon, uh, doing an amazing job in markets like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Bangladesh, Egypt. Uh, You know, I think if you want to play in those markets, you have to be extremely diligent and probably have feet on the ground. Um but still, like there is no doubt opportunity there, and extremely low uh venture funding amounts
0: from that, Mario, you know what excites you most about the future of v c
1: It's a good question I don't know if there's uh a huge sort of shift in venture that i'm you know, necessarily massively. I'm quite excited about the fact that I think we're seeing more people play in VC and there seems to be a broad democratization thanks to platforms like AngelList where more people can be involved in this asset class. Um, So that's very exciting. Uh, I think that's been pretty well discussed. Again, I think the thing that's most exciting to me is like how we start to direct venture funding towards markets in which, uh, you know, new marginal dollars in, like, make a huge impact. You know, if you're trying to build the sort of 100th social company in the U.S., like, that can still be very cool. Uh, You know, self-expression is definitely important online, and I I can totally find those businesses interesting. Uh, But I get, like, really excited when we start to think about, you know, bringing new people into the financial world in markets in which banking is non-existent or, you know, creating new healthcare paradigms in places where care really doesn't exist. Um, and so that's why I think I, I really like some of the emerging market stuff. And I'm excited for over the next 10 plus years, I hope, more funding to sort of chase companies in those in those markets.
0: And looking back at the checks that you've written so far, Mario, what would be the- the greatest lesson you've learned,
1: venture capital is uh such a tricky game because you don't get real feedback for years and years and years. I think what I'm seeing at least so far uh, and you know who knows which of these lessons will prove to be mirages or not um, but I think the the yeah the thing I've found so far is just like to keep an extremely high bar for yourself. Um, I think it's often easy when you're first getting started in angel investing to meet a company, and you're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense or like, yeah, that's interesting, they're a sort of impressive person, like, why don't I jump in on this? Uh, and it gets even easier when you say, oh, wow, like this really good VC that I admire is joining the round, so like, why don't I hop in? And I think realistically, uh, those mental shortcuts eventually catch up to you. Um, And so, and and also, you know, they don't feel as good, even if, you know, they turn out well or they turn out badly. In either case, like, you kind of don't get the benefit uh, that you would if you had really thought deeply about it um, and what that would teach you. And so I think the big lesson for me is, like, there are really no shortcuts. uh, If you want to play a game in which you're sort of, indexing from VCs you admire, that's totally fine. Uh, but for me, I think I've found you know, the most satisfying outcomes when I force myself to sit down, really think independently, and make up my own decision um, on whether this is a truly amazing company, a truly fascinating company in my book, rather than, you know, one that... I could see doing well and have some smart people around the table.
0: I love that. Let it come from within versus say these shortcut signals that are so often flooded into our, into our minds, Mario. No, I really, really like that one. And if you weren't writing and investing with the generalist, what would you be working on?
1: I think I would just be writing uh, other stuff. So, Um, you know, at some point in my life, I would love to write like a TV script, maybe about venture capital. Honestly, I think that would be like a great fodder for a show of some kind. Uh, I hope to write many other books, you know, first get this one out into the world and published and then work on others. Um, And then, you know, as a totally left field thing that I'd love to do is like, I would really like to work in football at some point. And I say football as you know, English football rather than American football. Um, I am, you know, having grown up in London, I am extremely Chelsea obsessed and uh, spend way too much time reading, you know, BBC, Football 365, Guardian, etc. cetera. Um, and I think it would be super cool to work at one of those organizations, and you know, try and, and help them grow and figure out how to bring sort of best practices from other industries into football. Um, yeah, I I I
0: think that'd be really fun. Whoever gets round to being made Mario I watch and uh, I do see your <laughs> Thank you. career in football burgeoning. <laughs> no. Um no, that's that's fascinating actually. Um I I Chelsea FC, so uh I'll have to uh, keep a keep a watching eye. Please do. <laughs> and I guess outside of the sphere of Um, you know, investing that we've been chatting about today, Mario, when you think of success, who is the first person that comes to mind and why? You
1: know, I was thinking about this question and uh, the truth is that I tend to not have like obvious role models. I don't, because I don't think other people have done exceptional things. Obviously I have huge admiration for many people, um, but I do generally feel like what i want to do is uh not yeah like relatively singular like i really would love to be someone who is able to create great works of writing across subjects matter with technical literacy and an appreciation of the capital markets and in the process of that like dabble in a ton of different things at a high level whether that's you know Writing, writing literature or investing. Um, so I haven't really seen someone who does those two things in tandem like at an exceptionally high level. And that's what I'm really trying to shoot for, I think, over the course of my lifetime. I would say in terms of people who I just admire because of uh, the person they are in the world, but, you know, this is going to be a cliche, but Barack Obama is someone who I think is one of the great historical figures um, of the past 50 years uh, and I think will be remembered exceptionally well as not only a hyper intelligent person but like extremely profound, poignant, a beautiful writer and uh, a high integrity individual. and so you know a great deal of elegance and grace that I think is admirable to uh, to think of.
0: And to wrap things up on the main body of this podcast, Mario, what does your perfect day look like?
1: Uh, My perfect day probably involves me getting up, uh, you know, eight or so going and getting a coffee and sitting there and writing some fiction for an hour or two, uh, going on a walk with my wife somewhere sunny, uh, maybe meeting up with some friends and ideally going to a live football match. Uh, So this would probably have to take place in Europe because I don't spend a lot of time uh, reading about MLS. So uh, let's say it's in London and I get to go to a nice Chelsea match. Um, And then going for an amazing Indian meal somewhere, probably. Either pizza or Indian are sort of my my two favorite uh, sort of cuisines. Um, And then in the evening, probably a quiet evening, uh, again, maybe maybe with some friends and uh, then some reading before bed, and that is the you know the boring dream life of Mario.
0: Not boring at all, mate. <laughs> I, I like that one. And next time you um, hop across, we'll have to go to one of those Chelsea games. I'm sure. Absolutely,
1: yeah, I would love it. Maybe I would play some football <laughs> at some point during that day too. That'd be
0: ideal. Perfect. Perfect. Now. I do have a tradition on this podcast where at the end of the show, each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guest. Now, Mario, last week we had Patrick Ryan, the co-founder of Odin, um, a fellow Brit on the show. And their question is, what law would you change and why?
1: I really like this tradition of yours. I think it's a great, a great practice. Um, I'm going to perhaps slightly ski... uh, Often, and rather than changing an existing law, I'm going to add a law uh, to the U.S. Uh, specifically, I'm going to bring back conscription uh, for two years at the age of 18. Uh, specifically, also, I should say, doesn't have to be serving in an armed forces scenario. It can be any form of community service. But I think the U.S. is, I mean, this is a, to a certain extent a global phenomenon, but the U.S. I think, a particularly good example of how wildly out of touch both political extremes are from one another um, and how little room there is for conversation or compromise. And I don't really see a great deal of hope in that changing in the near term. I think, you know, we can, you know, we could go it deep into the different reasons why that's the case, but know, social media has created a a huge amount of fractal truth that has been difficult for nation states to resolve. And I think America in particular has found that difficult. And I think one of the solutions would be to uh, create a reason for the young people in this country to uh, get to know one another from very, very different backgrounds. Like, I think that would be extremely beneficial to have people from very, very red states, working with people from very, very blue states to achieve things that are valuable for the community and also create a spirit of of giving back and camaraderie um, that is, in many respects, missing. You know, American patriotism often feels like the least charitable uh, version of patriotism uh, rather than one actually minded in in service. And so uh, as someone who, you know, comes from a few different countries, but feels certainly uh, like an American citizen, as as I am, and uh, great admiration for this country and what it is that you love to see a more constructive approach to building that into our collective psyche.
0: It's that really interesting paradox where the more connected we get online, that genuine feeling of interconnectedness almost erodes. And I think stomaching some of those Hard truths head on conscription Mario, might be might be the answer. for <laughs> sure that but we'll, we'll
1: make a, a lot. We'll we'll disagree with that, but um, you know, countries like you know Germany has done a great job of that of sort of offering both military outlets as well as more community minded ones. And uh, yeah, I think I think it could be very effective.
0: <laughs> hot take, hot take. I love it. I love it. Well, we have come to the end, but this has been a super great chat my friend and uh yeah thank you for joining me thanks so much
1: for having me alex i uh i had a really good time and was glad to to yeah uh, catch up and and talk through some of these things
0: cheers man i will chat to you very very soon
1: take care cheers Bye bye